spitting? It will be now. <laughs> All right. These machines are still mysterious to me. Okay. So we'll begin our exploration tonight with the Buddha, because he actually, in terms of looking at what it is that brings happiness to our lives and what it is that brings sorrow, conflict, suffering, he had a very very penetrating insight into the cause of our discontent. It's really amazing when I think about it because it goes so against what our conventional wisdom tells us. We, our conventional wisdom is that the way to be happy is to follow our desires and to get what we want, right? It's even built into the constitution of this country. (laughs) Happiness as a right to pursue. Well, the Buddha had a different approach, and he said that actually that our suffering or our happiness is not dependent on the outer circumstances of our lives, but really on understanding the force of craving in our minds and hearts and bodies, which we are all subject to. He said that actually the source of our suffering is in this compulsive, obsessive craving Basically, the force in us that always wants things to be different than they are. This is a very amazing insight, and it's not obvious at first that it's even true. So let's explore it a little bit together. Some years ago, I remember reading an article on an airplane about a man who was at that time the richest man in the world. He had about eight houses all over the world, each staffed with a whole staff of servants and cars, and he had a wife and child and many girlfriends. And you know how his friends described him? They described him as the most restless person they had ever met that he was often bored, that he was always on the move, endlessly in pursuit of entertainment and pleasure, and never satisfied. Well, us hearing that, we might think, well, just give me a chance, you know. (laughs) I'm not sure that that would be me. But I thought it was interesting to see that somebody who could have everything he wanted would be described that way by his friends. So let's look more closely to investigate the nature of what the Buddha called this craving in the mind. This craving in our being is described as the meaning of this word craving carries within it the meaning of unquenchable or unslakable thirst, a kind of wanting that is never satisfied. 
When we are caught in some kind of craving, there is often the belief that our very well-being depends on attaining a specific kind of satisfaction. This force of craving that I'm speaking of carries within it an addictive or compulsive demand for satisfaction that is based often largely on fantasy. We're feeling a strong desire for something and in that wanting there seems to be some mechanism whereby we project out onto the object of our craving an imaginary satisfaction. We imagine that that object will satisfy us in some way that no other object in the whole world can do. So that is part of what we do when we're caught in a, in a moment or a, a day or a, a, a week of intense craving. We look out to the sensory world for some form of satisfaction. We look to pleasant sights or sounds or tastes or sensations or moods emotions, thoughts, images of other people or ourselves. And we imbue them with, as I said, this power, this imaginary power to satisfy us. And sometimes we are able to attain that object, whatever it is, and we feel some sense of satisfaction perhaps not as great as we had fantasized, but nevertheless we feel some sense of our craving being satisfied. But it is very fleeting. It doesn't last. We find that we cannot hold on to it, nor onto the object which seems to provide this pleasure. The pleasure is fleeting and the object of our pleasure is unreliable. We have what we want now, but will it be there tomorrow? The Dhammapada, which are verses of the Buddha, says, The rain could turn to gold and still your thirst would not be slaked. Desire is unquenchable and ends in tears. Now this is a view that is very common in these teachings and it is one that challenges really uh, a lot of our sense of what it is that we're doing here in this world, what it is that we're doing to find happiness. The Buddha always said to not necessarily believe what was being said but to look to our own experience to find if it is true or not. So we can do this. We can look for the truth of this in our own experience. When the Buddha spoke about this kind of sensual craving, he was talking about a full range of desire, everything from our most intense passions to the most subtle moments of discontent. 
Right now, if you would just close your eyes for a moment and get in touch with right now, what would you like to be different? What would you like more of or less of? What would you rather be doing? Okay, open your eyes. Did anyone look inside and feel 100% content and happy just to be here? If you did, please raise your hand. We have one, two. You can go home. You don't need to be here. It's very interesting, isn't it, that just a very few moments of looking inside and we can observe first, we can say, well, there's a lot of thinking going on, there's a lot of spontaneous mental activity, and then if we look a little closer, we may notice that a lot of this thinking has to do with the play of wanting that we go out into the future, we go back into the past, we go every which way, and we can see that many of our, of this activity is actually fueled by some, some desire. Imaginary conversations with other people, what you wish you had, what you are going to do tomorrow, what you're going to do on the way home, romantic or sexual fantasies, strategies for solving problems concerning money, status, power, or love, fears of imagined disappointments or failures, revengeful encounters with people we're angry at, prideful fantasies of attaining success, We can observe all of this as we sit, and it's not a mistake. It's not like you're not doing it right if you experience this. Because what we're doing is exploring the nature of desire. So isn't it amazing that it's right here with us? We don't need to look far. So that's on the the mundane, ordinary, everyday side of the the range. On the other side of the range are those amazingly intense, passionate moments or times in our lives when we were in the grip of something where we really felt and thought that we could not live without fill in the blank. What would it be? What? Huh? Air. Air. I remember back in high school, the fantasies that I had about the football captain, the high school football captain, I was pretty sure, you know, I couldn't live without. 
Right now, I can't even remember his name. I, you know, I don't know anything about him. <laughs> so many moments we've had, all of us in our lives, where we really felt that our well-being was somehow dependent on a person, a new car, a new job, a new house, fill in the blank. So we've all had a taste of very intense passions. Did it bring us the lasting happiness that we thought it would? That's an interesting question, isn't it? If you can reflect on that, what was that about? My goodness, I really believed it when I was in it. There's a woman named Margot Anand who teaches and writes about human sexuality. And in her book, she tells us, the average orgasm lasts 10 seconds. The average frequency of intercourse is once or twice a week. That's 20 seconds a week. (laughs) This is my favorite one. One and a half minutes a month. (laughs) 18 minutes a year. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? For one and a half minutes of ecstasy a month, if we're fortunate... (laughs) How many hundreds of hours do we devote to (laughs) strategizing, thinking about, daydreaming, wondering, longing, planting, planning? (laughs) I'd like to read to you some random examples of what people do when all they can think about is sex with a certain someone. Here's a list. I sat in front of her house in my car for three weeks from 6 a.m. until midnight. I walked 30 miles to be with her, except I read the map wrong, so I ended up in the wrong town. Bill moved from the Midwest to the East Coast so he could live within 100 miles of a woman he was in love with. It didn't matter that she was married and pregnant. She might call. (laughs) I spent $7,000 on cards and flowers for her last year. He can't have him, so he gets high and has anonymous sex for weeks to get him out of his system. Six years later, he's dead. He liked long hair, so I grew my hair. He prefers blondes, so I dyed my hair blonde. He likes young women, so I just had a facelift. I'm only 35. The last one. She kept leaving messages on my answering machine that she would blow up my Jaguar if I kept seeing Suzanne. The only problem was that she had the wrong number. So we could probably, with this size of a group, we could probably come up with a very colorful list of adding to these random examples of what we might have done. 
I recently sat a retreat with um, the monk, Achan Amaro. Do some of you know him? He's one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock, and he told a delightful story uh, about himself, about how he was overcome with infatuation for a woman for about a period of about a year during his life. He was a monk. He was totally committed to living as a celibate monk, so there was no question of him breaking his vows, but he was just overcome with this incredible infatuation with a woman who was living at the center. So his practice for that year was really about exploring for himself the nature of desire. And he described, you know, these different incidents. And the one that I remember the most was how just the mere sight of her shoes outside the meditation hall would make his heart start beating (laughs) and would ignite his fantasy and his passion. Now, isn't that interesting that... And I'm sure we've all had that experience to one degree or another. The the mere sight of somebody's shoes would do that to us. Another one of the teachers in our tradition, Upandita Sayadaw, said, said it very succinctly. He said, lust cracks the brain. (laughs) Wide open. Last night I happened to be, uh, it's funny how this works, but sometimes when you're working on a talk then you, you, you get material from strange places. And last night I happened to be watching 60 Minutes. I don't know if any of you were watching it, but there were a group of um, sex addicts um, being talked to and interviewed about their addiction. and. Several of these men were able to be quite articulate about, mind you, they were in prison for many years and they were thinking back to the time when they were actively um, pursuing their, their sex addiction. And they, several of them said how what they noticed now was that the fantasy was often much more exciting and stimulating than the reality. And that so part of the compulsive cycle was having a very intense fantasy that would not be matched by the actual reality, but somehow the search for that perfect object would keep them compulsively acting out. And I think it is true that in in looking at lust in particular in our lives, that we have to admit that much of our sexual craving is in fantasy, not necessarily connected to the reality. Years ago, I lived in New York City, and this was in my youth, my 20s, and I had a couple of jobs working uh, for a, a office temp company, you know, temporary office help. And so I was assigned to an architectural firm to do secretarial work. And I went there and was minding my own business as far as I was concerned. And a man in the office developed this huge infatuation with me. Mind you, he didn't know me. 
I mean, we hardly spoke. But he would be starting to send me flowers every day and presents and writing me love letters. And I was, I mean, it was a little bit amusing because it was clearly not about me because he never actually talked to me. But it was this huge fantasy thing that he had going on. Needless to say, I chose eventually to leave that job because it was just too uncomfortable for me. Um, and then I remember another time, in, also in New York City during that period, when I was having fantasies about somebody who was a... It was during the, the Civil Rights Movement, and I was having a lot of attraction to this one figure in the Civil Rights Movement who was publicly pretty well known and I didn't think I would ever actually meet him but I thought he was a performer and I thought he was just you know fabulous but then perhaps the way these things work who knows but eventually I ended up meeting him at a friend's house one night and we got introduced so I had an opportunity to actually meet the object of all my infatuation and fantasy and it was like nothing it was like, who is this person? You're not my fantasy. You're not at all. You don't fit what I had thought at all. And I just felt very, not, not much for him at all. <laughs> but I think that, you know, both as the object of somebody else's fantasy or seeing our own fantasy not being met by the reality, it just is this teaching about how sexual fantasy thrives or sexual craving thrives on fantasy and obsession. That desire often has little to do with the actuality of the object. I'll give you another example, and this has to do with cheese. <laughs> there was a woman on retreat who told a story, and she told the story that Somewhere in her life, she had developed this love for this particular kind of French cheese. And she would eat this cheese whenever she could, and she just thought it was fabulous. After she sat her first meditation retreat, she went home, and she had her cheese. <laughs> and she was in the middle of eating the cheese, and it suddenly struck her that she said, I hate this cheese. I don't even like this cheese. I've been eating it all these years, thinking I loved it. But when I actually taste it with mindfulness, with awareness, I don't even like it. Isn't that interesting? When we actually bring awareness to what it is we think is so pleasurable, it may turn out not to be what we had thought it to be. And so this brings us actually right into our practice. That working, so here we are subject to craving for all kinds of things and people and situations and objects. That working with our craving, what does it mean in meditation practice to work with desire? 
Does it mean to suppress our desires, that if we're going to be good spiritual people that we shouldn't have desires? Does it mean getting rid of our desires, trying to ignore them? Actually not. Actually not. It means actually experiencing the nature of desire, getting to know it really well. Just like in this little example that we did, noticing that there was this push inside of you that wanted something, at least one thing, about your experience right now to be different. So our practice is about becoming very intimate with the nature of desire itself, and we do that by directly feeling it in our experience without the belief that we have to act it out, that it's okay to feel desire very fully without necessarily acting it out. Now that's a very major kind of shift in our usual way of thinking and feeling about desire. So right now I'd like to invite you, if you're willing, to close your eyes once again and allow yourself to think of something you really, really want. Let yourself become consumed with desire. Whatever it might be, let the feeling really develop. Now notice and bring attention to the feeling Noticing the feeling in the body. What does it feel like in the body? What does it feel like in your mind to contemplate, to desire this thing, whatever it is? Noticing that you can bring quite a bit of attention just to feeling it, feeling it in the body, feeling it in the mind, noticing what kinds of thoughts or images arise in relationship to it. We can also notice that the more we keep our body relaxed and at ease, the easier this exercise is, that you can actually experience desire quite fully and specifically. And we might ask ourselves these questions. Is this experience of desire pleasant or unpleasant? Is there a sense of tension or do you feel quite relaxed and at ease? Is it an agitating feeling or a peaceful feeling?
is there a belief that your well-being is very dependent on attaining this object of desire? Do you really believe that? Do you believe you will be a happier person for having attained it? Okay, come back, open your eyes. What did you notice, anyone? Anyone willing to share anything they noticed? Perhaps something you hadn't noticed before about the experience of desire? Reality check. <coughs> Can you say more? No. <laughs> <laughs> Who else? Yes. I found it kind of unpleasant, and I felt my chest sort of constricting, and my eyes kind of tightening and narrowing, and it was really not that great. It wasn't that great. Constricting, narrowing. Yes. In the back. Uh-huh. Wanting something that's not there. Yeah. Yes. Mariana. I, mine felt really wonderful, but when you asked, um, does your well-being depend on this, and do you really believe it? And I thought, well, I guess my well-being doesn't really depend on it, but it would be really nice if this happened. It would be helpful. And then I thought, that's not such a great idea to have that belief that my well-being is Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is called an insight. <laughs> yes. I found that there's a tremendous difference between desiring something you can't have, really can't have, <clears throat> impossible to have, and something that you might be able to get. Uh, the, uh, sort of, sort of that, that craving for something you possibly Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> right. There's. It, it, it seems more. It be ten years younger, but it's never going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, still, still, you can think about that. Uh huh. That's much less intense than something. Okay. Yes. I found my desire was about something about myself and self-attainment. Mm-hmm. Very full and and empowered, and actually was able to be that. Uh huh. Shifted it to something outside of myself. Yes. I could feel uh, the air just leave me. Mm-hmm. Shrink down. Yeah, right. So it's very interesting, isn't it? There's no right answer to this, obviously. There's no right answer. But this is the direction of our practice to notice the actual experience of desire, to see what it is, what, it, what is it? Did you want to say something? Yes. Um, I was actually thinking more the opposite, um, which in a way is the same because it distracts you, is how much I'm not seeking pleasure. 
how much I, you know, I don't need it, but in a way it does distract me mm -hmm. from being empty. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to mention the other side of a coin from seeking pleasure or from refraining pleasure. What's she said it's important to think of refraining from pleasure as, as being also a um, place where we get caught sometimes, not allowing ourselves pleasure. Actually, the dance of pleasure and pain is very, very interesting in practice. In my experience, the two have, they're not always that far apart anymore. And that actually it can be very skillful at times in practice to bring our attention directly to the pleasurable. For example, if we're feeling very, a lot of grief in our life, or we're feeling very angry, or some very negative, unpleasant state, sometimes it's skillful means, when you're sitting or going about your day, to consciously bring your attention to what is pleasant because it helps to balance the mind. And I don't mean to bring attention to that kind of craving we're talking about, where it's that craving for something that doesn't exist, but simply to bring your attention to some pleasant sight, sound, sensation, thought. It helps to balance the mind. So that's a good point. We're not against pleasure here. We're learning how to balance the consciousness. I started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you're more involved with the process rather than the trying to get to the result. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, it, it becomes, uh, it's sort of, I don't know how to describe it, but it's not, there, there is no real goal with it. It's, it's a real opening mm -hmm. to what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, what is it? Uh, mm -hmm. I guess, what is it I can learn from this? Or just, mm -hmm. what is it about mm -hmm. this? Yeah, a lot of our practice is just, what is this? What is desire? What is lust? What is craving? It's just that willingness to sit down and be present and explore in this kind of investigative way. Because that's what frees us. We'll never be free trying to get rid of things or trying to be some kind of model, spiritual, somebody. Or diverting yourself. Or diverting yourself from, from it. But just that willingness to be completely present is what actually frees us. Okay, then the other little exercise which I wanted to give you with an eye on the time is this idea of another way to play with this, um, this understanding is to imagine what it would be like to actually have everything you want. Whatever you want, it's yours. You think it, you got it. Imagine what kind of a world that would be for yourself. If whatever your, your thought desired, it was right there instantly. The right people, the right body, the, a mind that was con constantly happy and inspired from morning till night. Whatever you want, it's there, it's yours. A world of total pleasure. What would that be like? In the Buddhist cosmology, there is a realm called the God realm, where this is the reality, where everyone and everything is pleasurable and beautiful, where all desires are fulfilled instantly, 
where everyone has perfect bodies. There's no need to uh, maintain because there's no aging, there's no disease, you don't need to work out, it's just happening all by itself. Everyone is in a great mood, only happy thoughts. The environment is constant springtime, filled with beauty and beautiful sights, beautiful sounds, beautiful tastes. The food is exquisite. Everyone is happy from morning to night. Everything is experienced as a blissful and pleasurable enhancement of one's already cheerful mood. <laughs> the experience of... The, it, it is a total experience of pleasure. What do you suppose that would be like? Who would you be in such a world? No, no way. Some of us would like to sign up and others are a little skeptical. That's probably what it boils down to. One thing that's it seems clear is that in such a state, one is pretty self-involved most of the time. There's just this abiding in one's own bliss and one's own pleasure where there's not a lot of necessary contact with other beings in any kind of compassionate way, because there's no need for that. There's also the sense that in such a world there would be a belief that one was invulnerable, that nothing bad could ever happen to one. And so when it is said in this realm, when death comes, it is a total shock. Because even in the God realm, people live, these gods live, you know, kalpas. They live many, many kalpas, you know, millions of gazillions of years. But they do die eventually. But there's no sense of preparation for this. And when somebody starts to die, they just sort of instantly start to die. All their friends abandon them because it freaks them out so much. And they're left alone in this horribly fearful state with no resources to call on because this is so unlike their previous experience. So this is kind of a metaphor for what it's like when we ourselves are caught in a trance of pleasure. We lose a certain perspective, don't we? When we're just completely caught in this world of pleasure, we lose perspective. We lose a sense of compassion for other people's suffering. We're just completely involved in our own experience. Well, fortunately for us, or unfortunately, depending on your bent, we do not live in such a realm. We live in the human realm, which the Buddha said was the ideal realm for liberation. Why? Because in the human realm, there's a balance between pleasure and pain. There's not so much pleasure that we just get lost in that world and fail to develop 
qualities of being like wisdom and compassion, nor do we live in a, a realm where there's just so much pain that we can't even um, have the energy to practice or pay attention because there's a balance here. We have just enough pleasure and just enough pain. The pain keeps waking us up. The pleasure keeps calming us down and saying, it's okay, you can. it's all right, it's not so bad. So... This is what wakes us up, learning to dance with both pleasure and pain. We can't hold on to pleasure, nor can we avoid the pain. There's a poem by Rumi that kind of speaks of this. It's called The Importance of Failing. God fixes a passionate desire in you and then disappoints you. God does that a hundred times. But sometimes your plans work out. You feel fulfilled and in control. That's because if you were always failing, you might give up. But remember, it is by failures that lovers stay aware of how they're loved. Failure is the key to the kingdom within. It keeps us awake. It keeps us letting go. So this sense of living in a world where there's both pleasure and pain and trying to strategize so that we only have pleasure and no pain is one that we discover the limitations of as we practice. That as we practice, without such a sense of an agenda that I must get this and I must get rid of that. But actually, when we can just open and allow things to be as they are, pleasure, pain, sweet, sour, we begin to cultivate a quality of presence that is, in some way, the direction of our practice It's not about putting forth our personal agenda so much as learning to be with life as it is and discovering that life as it is is actually quite fine. We don't believe this until we begin to practice and we begin to learn that it is this quality of presence, actually, that we really want, because it is this quality of presence in which there is love, in which there is acceptance, in which there is compassion, in which there is joy, in which there is life happening moment to moment. I remember a time in my practice early on when I first started, I had a lot of intensity of emotion and a lot of thoughts about the past and a lot of feeling of just turbulent things going on. And it took some time before all that settled down. And then eventually when I would sit, <coughs> there would just be sounds and tastes and thoughts. But there, all that intensity had just kind of left. And that what was left was just a feeling, what I interpreted at that time was... I had lost my practice because it didn't feel like there was anything of any significance going on anymore. I was just sitting there and nothing was happening. 
So I went to Joseph Goldstein and I told him about my experience and he smiled at me and he said, Anna, he said, I think you're experiencing calm. <laughs> I was like, calm? I don't do calm, you know? But it was. It was an experience of calm. And there's some way that a lot of these qualities of consciousness, we, we can't even begin to contact until some of that level of intensity and wanting has... Um, in some way softened, at least, in some way quieted down. What came with that spaciousness of mind, what comes in practice with that spaciousness of mind, with lessening of wanting and needing and craving, are qualities of calm, of sensitivity, of joy, of compassion, of rapture, of clarity of energy, they come quite naturally to a mind that is more content, that is settled, that is present. So there's not so much a sense that I think sometimes gets communicated about practice that letting go of wanting is this huge loss. It's really not true because all these other qualities then can come in and they're very pleasant to experience. There's a little poem of Rumi's, When were you any the less for dying? So we can ask ourselves, is our letting go of our personal agenda for our meditation, for our lives, is it not an allowing of a larger knowing of life, of an awareness and an awakening to reality as it is, and an actual expansion of our consciousness. It's really put beautifully by this poem of Rumi. He says, little by little, wean yourself. This is the gist of what I have to say. From an embryo whose nourishment comes in the blood, move to an infant drinking milk, to a child on solid food, to a searcher after wisdom, to a hunter of more invisible game. Think how it is to have a conversation with an embryo. You might say, the world outside is vast and intricate. There are wheat fields and mountain passes and orchards in bloom. At night there are millions of galaxies and in sunlight the beauty of friends dancing at a wedding. You ask the embryo why he or she stays cooped up in the dark with eyes closed. Listen to the answer. There is no other world. I only know what I've experienced. You must be hallucinating. And so in some way our practice is this expansion away from the hallucination of our personal version of reality to a sense of the much larger world of which we are a part. So let's sit together for just a moment. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.